You're listening to the Quince podcast. Indian education is going to see some sweeping changes being made to its current structure thanks to the new education policy or the NEP 2020. For schools the NEP aims to move away from the idea of rote learning and high stakes board exams and focus more on an experiential and skill based learning. For higher education its plans are quite ambitious almost a comprehensive revamp of the current structure that includes dismantling regulators of higher education such as the UGC the AICTE and the NCTE and also bringing back the four year multidisciplinary undergraduate program but the NEP is only a broad vision a road map of sorts nothing is changing by tomorrow it's a long term plan that'll easily take the next couple of decades if not more to implement The Ministry of Education has set itself a deadline to bring all these suggested changes by 2040 but in the meantime it's going through some scrutiny. While the general perception has been positive it's worth breaking down the NEP to see its hits and misses. In the previous episode of the Big Story we deep dived into its reforms for school education if you haven't listened to that episode yet please to check it out. In this episode we'll dissect into the propositions put forth to remodel higher education. What does the NEP do for public education? What can the reintroduction of FIUP mean for students? Are the policies advancing towards privatization of higher education? In this podcast you will hear from Congress leader and former HRD minister Shashi Tharoor, Professor Rajiv Bray who's the president of Duta and Ashish Dhawan the founder and chairman of Central Square Foundation. You're listening to the Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline making news for you. and I'm your host Shorbri. The NEP 2020 is being hailed as the first proper reform to education in 34 years. India has seen three such reforms till date. The first NPE was promulgated by the Indira Gandhi government in 1968, the second one by the Rajiv Gandhi government in 1986, and now the third one by the Modi government. Before I get into the takeaways and analysis of the biggest reform suggested for higher education some of the initial concerns with the NEP are on procedural issues while welcoming the policy congress leader and former hr minister shashi tharoor who played a part in drafting the 1986 policy questioned the government on its decision to ratify the draft before introducing it in the parliament first one concern i definitely have is um though we were consulted earlier on um an earlier draft i'm talking about almost a year ago now the last time i saw the minister in yeah. his office to discuss that draft and he was very receptive so i give him full credit for that right we um uh, have not heard anything since and in fact in each of the last two sessions of parliament i asked him uh what happened to the new education policy he said it's coming it's coming you know it has to go before the cabinet first and so on. and now it's gone before the cabinet and been publicly released without any discussion in parliament i think that's a bit unfortunate some of the promises in the nep also tends to be quite overreaching for instance it wants to increase the public investment into the education sector to reach 6% of the gdp at the earliest and that mr tharoor believes is unrealistic he talks about what the government could have proposed instead You see I really like the fact that they have high aspirations don't get me wrong I want those aspirations um, to be there for our country but for example spending gdp or uh, 6% of gdp on education 
every government says it, no government's done it. And it's been going on for decades. If the target is too unrealistic, people don't try hard enough to fulfill it. What could have been much more fulfillable, for example, is to commit a significant amount of government resources to research and innovation, research and development. But this government has sadly not been able to do that. Again, in its time, there's been a significant decline in the percentage of GDP being spent on research. And the number of people in India um, doing research uh, in terms of per one lakh population, we have 15 researchers, the Chinese have 111. So there's something where we could have said, yeah, let's aim for the Manmohan Singh target of 1% of GDP. Manmohan Singh got close. I think his best year was 0.96%. But now let's get straight to the point. What are the biggest takeaways for college and university education? First is the comeback of the controversial FYUP. When it was initially proposed in 2013 in Delhi University by former Vice-Chancellor Dinesh Singh, it faced a lot of resistance until it was rolled back by former HRD Minister Smriti Rani. A lot of protests were staged, including by the ABVP, which is the student wing of the BJP. And the criticisms were many. The lack of infrastructure, the implementation of it without an amendment to the Universities Act, the lack of a national framework, to name a few. In its present form, the three-year and four-year courses will be allowed to coexist but with multiple entry and exit options. Those who complete four years will graduate with an honours degree, the three-year programme will lead to a bachelor's degree and the two-year course will earn a diploma. And both the three-year and four-year programmes may lead to a degree with research if the student completes a rigorous research project as specified by the Higher Education Institute or the HEI. An academic credit bank has also been proposed to keep a record of students' academic credits if they ever choose to return after dropping out. But does the introduction of FIUP raise similar concerns as before? Professor Rajiv Bray, who is the president of DUTA or the Delhi University Teachers Association, gives us his analysis. So what they are trying to do is, uh, uh, is different from the earlier FIUP. We, I presume it is different. Yes, in the number of years, they are moving in uh, for the so-called American model. That's all at this moment, I can tell you. But the structural changes in the university and the higher education institutes, uh, we are largely at this moment, I'm looking closely into that, what changes they think. Because just by saying uh, very efficient and people who would have loved the institutions and uh, academic leadership will... Uh, will take over this HEI through the Board of Governors. So uh, our interest is largely on that. Let people, because uh, let it sit down to the students. But uh, policies, uh, people were trying to move this whole, uh, uh, you know, academic credit banks to be established uh, so that the transfers can take place, people can go in and come out, is largely for... Uh, other institutions to be established in this country. Okay? Let us be very clear. Uh, people who had supported us against foreign institutions uh, today would want the top 100 uh, uh, you know, universities to come and uh, have their own offices and shops around here. And uh, their scheme of things would require a four-year system. And that's the reason we, they are moving to the four-year system. How you visualize a four-year scheme was important. Was it necessary? Probably it became necessary for them because they wanted to get in private investment. 
The second point is that MPhil has been scrapped. So with that out of the way, the minimum eligibility for PhD will now either be a four-year program with research or master's degree after a three-year program. Number three, the policy has called for a single higher education regulator and that's going to replace all the other regulatory bodies such as the UGC, the AICTE and the NCTE. Now currently the UGC is the apex body responsible for the release of grants and maintaining standards of colleges. And the governing body so far has sort of been a mix of academicians and bureaucrats. So even though it has its limitations, there's still been some amount of autonomy in the UGC. Now, the HECI will have four verticals, one of which is the Higher Education Grants Council or the HEGC. And that's supposed to carry out the funding and financing aspect of colleges. But this point has drawn stern criticism from politicians, student and teacher bodies alike, who allege that the repealing of the UGC will only lead to further centralization of the government's role in the distribution of grants. Professor Ray talks about his concerns about where that will leave public sector institutions of higher education. And they will be, uh, uh, you know, uh, pay equal treatment to both private and public. Uh, in 70-odd years, we have reached 27% in GER. Okay? And GER in gross enrollment ratio with anything less than 2% uh, in uh, higher education. Uh less than 0.7% in uh, research. So, uh, you know, show me the grant, show me the money from the government. Hmm. And uh, if huge funding flows do not come in the public sector, hmm. the public funded institution uh, will not be able to compete with the private players that will come up. Okay. So the kind of degeneration that has uh, happened in most schools all over the country will happen to the public-funded higher education institutions in here also. 95% all salaries and everything is paid by uh, by the taxpayer's money or by the government of India. Whether it is Miranda House, whether it is Venkateshwara, whether it is St. Stephen's, whether it is the college where I teach in Kirolimar College, all these are paid through the UGC, UGC funds it. But once now they have said that you can only do infrastructural, you know, uh, for any infrastructure, for hostel to others, you'll have to get it through the HIFA. Mm -hmm. HIFA does not find a place in the education report. Mm -hmm. But it has already started. Okay? Yeah. No institutions will see uh, the, uh, what is happening to the IITs on the HIFA. the IOE things that have come up. So the education policy may have been released formally uh, two days back, okay? Mm -hmm. But uh, they have already started on this process. Moving on to the fourth takeaway, there'll be a common entrance exam for admissions to universities and colleges to be conducted by the National Testing Agency or the NTA. Number five, reversing the center's earlier stance on the Foreign Educational Institutions Bill of 2010 introduced by the UPA government, the new education policy has set forth an increase in the offshore campuses of foreign universities. They'll be given a special dispensation regarding regulatory governance and content norms on par with other autonomous educational institutions in India and 
Ashish Dhawan, the founder and chairman of Central Square Foundation, believes that it's unlikely to be a game changer in Indian education. I think with foreign universities, let's not think of this as the big game changer in higher ed. Okay. Um, you know, universities don't travel uh, and go plant themselves in multiple locations. The best ones at least don't. I mean, all the best in the world tend to have one physical campus. There have been some exceptions, Yale NUS and a couple of institutions like NYU and Georgetown and others going to the Middle East. But it's because those governments put a lot of capital to attract them. So by and large, the best institutions are not looking to set up in India. They are instead looking at partnerships. And I think that's already happening. You're seeing it with some of the emerging private universities. There are partnerships. There's knowledge transfer, joint research, programs where students can go for a semester. I mean, I think we need to be global in our outlook. I think that's more important. So we need these partnerships in that sense so that we're global in outlook. We need to look at global standards, you know, global rankings and where we stack up and global. Are we meeting up to those global standards of research or teaching? We need to look at becoming more globalized within our universities. So get more international students. Uh, there's no reason, I believe, that India can't become a center for this part of the world. Uh, our instruction is in English. If you look at most of Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, SARC, and even Southeast Asia, there's three billion people in this geography, three plus billion people. Why can't we build some of the leading universities where people from these countries aspire to come to India? Next, the one important thing that the NEP wants to do is encourage a multidisciplinary course. It tries to dissolve the lines between science, arts and commerce and that, Mr. Dhawan says, is a welcome change. So quick self-disclosure, I'm a founder and I chair the board of trustees of Ashoka University. So um, for, from our perspective, I think this idea of shifting Indian higher education towards multidisciplinary and holistic education is a game changer. And to do it by 2030, I think is very ambitious, but is the right thing. You know, we're living in a different world than the system designed for us by the British, which really puts students in a straitjacket. You know, you study one narrow discipline after specializing post the board exam in 10th grade, math, science, engineering, you know, what have you. And it's, it's way too narrow. And I think in today's world, if you have to be successful, you need 21st century skills, you know, the ability to think critically, to write and communicate well orally, uh, the ability to connect the dots between different disciplines and to have a love for learning because you're going to be a continuous learner, a knowledge worker in the economy. And so I think this shift is, is the biggest change in the policy. Apart from that, I think the, the idea of multiple entry and exit points is very important. Not every student needs to do a three-year degree. I mean, for some, one year is appropriate. It also brings some things that are very vocational into the one-year format. A two-year diploma may be appropriate for some others. And then a three-year degree if you want to go in the workforce. And a four-year degree if you want some greater specialization or you want to go on to a more specialized job or an academic track thereafter. So I think having these various exit points is very important because not the goals of different people coming into colleges are very, very different. They can get addressed through these different exit points. And then a third one is really around this issue of research, where the National Research Foundation, my hope is it will be well-funded, 
and that it'll have a relatively independent governance so that it can define certain key areas, you know, AI, ML, biotechnology, quantum computing, and push research uh, at universities in a certain direction and be more risk-taking than the current pools of research that we have. And finally, the issue of regulation, uh, where uh, having a single regulator, I think, is important. Uh, and this idea of graded autonomy for affiliated colleges. Uh, most, so many students have gone to, you know, colleges that are privately run but are affiliated to a university. There are 40,000 such colleges in India. And initially, to even take our best ones and to give them autonomy, to let them break free, will allow them to improve but also to scale up. And then we can do it in phases with the others as well. Uh, and some form of online self-disclosure, self-regulation, quality assurance, I think is important. So I think those are the key elements from a higher ed perspective. Now, coming to one of the controversial aspects of the draft, it proposes to establish an apex body, that is the Rashtriya Shiksha Ayog with Prime Minister Narendra Modi at its helm. On the RSA's role, the draft says, and I'm quoting it, Quote, it'll be responsible for developing, articulating, implementing, evaluating and revising the vision of education in the country on a continuous and sustained basis. It'll also create and oversee the institutional frameworks that will help achieve this vision. End quote. Now, be it school, syllabus or college, we've seen a lot of political intervention into education under different governments. So will this also facilitate more political meddling into higher education? Professor Ray says that having any overarching regulator for higher education will be questionable. Whether it was the prime minister at the head or the MHRD or the education minister at the head, in an overarching any regulator at this moment, will be very dangerous for the academic situation in the country. Okay. Uh, it has to be tight. It will be a single window. Single window to do what? Uh, to give uh, permission to the private players to come in. If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to the Big Story playlist for episodic updates. We'll have on Apple, Google Podcast, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quinn website and check out the podcast section. For any feedback, shoot an email to podcasts at thequinn.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quinn's website and check out our other podcasts.